Hey everybody, today we've got news for the week ending Friday, August 27th, skyrocketing rents uh, and inflation, a couple crypto and NFT updates, and social security. Will it be there when you need it? So let's start out with uh, rents. They're skyrocketing. So I found this report uh, from CoreLogic, which calls itself a, quote, leading global property information analytics and data-enabled solutions provider. And they released their latest single-family rent index on August 17th. So apologies for sharing this a bit after the fact. But this index analyzes single-family rent price changes nationally and uh, in individual metropolitan, major metropolitan areas. And get this, June 2021 data shows a national rent increase of 7.5% year over year. That's right, 7.5%. So how many middle and lower class families do you know who got 7.5% raises at their jobs last year? Oh, and that's uh, up from a 1.4% year over year increase in June of 2020. So that's pretty significant, 7.5%. So why did this happen? And how could it jump so fast? Well, um, let me let you in on a little secret. A whole lot of lower and middle class folks actually did have big raises, but those raises didn't come from their jobs. It came from stimmy checks and enhanced unemployment. So I've said this before, uh, and a couple episodes ago, I gave out that dumb little illustration about the high school kids getting more money, which raised the price of the sandwiches. I can't remember what episode that was, but that was my ham-fisted attempt to explain simple price inflation and how that happens inevitably when more dollars are chasing the same amount of goods. And so in the last year, the amount of new housing that's come online has been basically unnoticeable, while at the same time, millions of people who were uh, originally making, say, 500 bucks a week or so, for a while, we're getting 600 bucks a week in addition to their unemployment checks. And then up until a couple of weeks from now, they had that bonus windfall drop to still significant $300 a week level, which still left them with a nice fat pay raise, um, which is why restaurants have been so understaffed and there's, four, or there's help wanted signs in every single window on every business on every street in the country, pretty much. So anyway, so what happens when uh, people have more money to spend on rent, but pretty much no new housing is being built? No, that's right. 7.5% year-over-year rent increases. So after September 4th, when the pandemic unemployment assistance for gig workers ends and the bonus $300 supplementary unemployment checks stop coming, do you think the rents are going to go back down? No, they're not. It's going to be a lot easier and faster to get an Uber car, and restaurants might actually be fully staffed, but the rents will not be going down. Um, so what cities uh, had the biggest rent increases? Well, Phoenix came in first with 16.5%, followed by Vegas at 12.9%, and that's year over year. I mean, I wish that I would have bought property in Phoenix and in Vegas, but um, that's that's insane. Those are crazy numbers. And I don't know uh, how much time you've spent in Phoenix lately or Vegas, but they're both shitty places to live, you know, to make matters even worse. So out of the top 10 highest rent growth cities, eight of those cities were in double digits. Now, I like to talk about rent increases for two reasons. One, because I'm a real estate investor, 
uh, this news is really nothing but a good thing for all of us. I mean, I remember about four years ago when I first started freaking out about market volatility and uh, obsessing about my retirement. Um, you know, at that point, I didn't own any rentals, but I was really starting to become sensitive about the fact that taxes and inflation were going to be my two biggest net worth killers when the time comes that I retire. And that led me to research, you know, fixed income programs like annuities that might, you know, keep up with inflation. Uh, and though the idea of those steady paychecks sound really good on paper, the overall returns on those uh, annuities and whatnot are terrible. And you know, there's also TIPS or Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. And while that concept is good on paper too, they're still bonds. And at this point in history, they don't pay shit. And they're pegged to the CPI, which as I have beaten to death, understates inflation by a long shot. So for me, as I was trying to figure out a strategy for dealing with the taxes and inflation, I remember plain as day, I was driving by this house with a for rent sign out in front of it. And it was a total aha moment because rent is one of the few things that actually does move somewhat in lockstep with inflation. Of course, this is an oversimplification because rent is very location specific, but overall it goes up and it doesn't go back down. That said, that was really the moment when I decided that owning my own rentals had to be part of the plan. Now, the other reason that I like to talk about this stuff and these rent increases and whatnot is that it proves some basic economic laws, laws that we, a lot of us, tend to ignore. Laws like supply and demand, scarcity, price discovery, you know, and all that. Um, it also shows how important that 30-year fixed loan is. I mean, I seriously, once again, I feel so bad for people who are in tenuous financial situations and have to be renters. It's really sad when you think about it. Oh, and speaking of that, I saw an incredibly disturbing video the other day on CNBC.com by this kid named Ramit Sethi. Don't know if you've heard of him, but he's the author of the very mediocre book called I Will Teach You to Be Rich. And in this video, he argues against homeownership with some of the insanely financially illiterate data points that, um, that I've shared with you before. And by the time I was finished watching this, I wanted to punch my monitor because this fucker is a real live influencer spreading terrible advice. Anyway, um, I'm going to do a whole episode about his teachings pretty soon, but I, I need a week or so to cool off, if you will. Anyway, so next up, let's talk about crypto real quick. It was an interesting week. Bitcoin briefly popped up over 50 grand, which made all the hodlers go nuts. But after a little moderate pullback, we're sitting around 48K as I record this on Friday. Um, and so you also, you might've heard the announcement that Visa bought a CryptoPunk NFT for $150,000. Yep, 150 grand for a JPEG. So uh, a guy named Kui Sheffield, uh, Visa's head of crypto, explained that CryptoPunks are part of the growing market focused on blockchain assets. And he said the purchase represents a, quote, new chapter in digital co commerce. Now, if you haven't heard of CryptoPunks, uh, just look it up. They're these little pixelated uh, images that were some of the first NFTs and people are, I mean, as you can tell by the fact that Visa paid 150 grand for one, 
the people who bought early on these crypto punks, you know, and spent a couple of bucks on them and are turning them into $100,000 uh, sales, they, they got to be really happy. So uh, this guy, Sheffield, the uh, Visa head of crypto, uh, gave this statement to Art News. He said, quote, our excitement about this project is less about any individual punk and more about the crypto punk collection as a whole and what it represents the beginnings of a new chapter for digital commerce. This is just the beginning. We are eager to continue building our NFT collection and to support the diverse group of artists and creators working in this space. So speaking of NFTs, um, I'm still playing around in this world. And I got to tell you, I totally blew it on those Damien Hurst flips that I told you about a couple weeks ago. So Originally, I paid two grand when that collection first dropped, and then I sold the first one for I can't remember how much and flipped a couple more, basically turned that two grand into around 10 or 10 or 11. But as it turns out, if I would have just held my ground and just held on to it, I could have made a ton more. Get this, right now, the cheapest one that you're going to find of the Damien Hurst currency collection is just under 40 grand. So I thought I was printing money by ending up with a 5x return, and it could have been a 20x return. Anyway, live and learn. So today I uh, bought another kind of cool uh, NFT. It's called The Endless Ride to Canoga Park uh, by Ryan Seslow, S-E-S-L-O-W, and it's really cool. If you want to take a look, I put it on my Instagram, and it, apologies in advance, I'm super new to Instagram, even though I signed up for the account about nine years ago, but there's only like six pictures that I've posted. Um, but anyway, there's a link to my account in the show notes so you can take a look at that NFT. I think this Ryan Seslow guy is going to be a thing, so I think that uh, it'll be worth some dough down the line. Anyway, back to Visa. So why did they make $150,000 investment in an NFT. Well, I honestly, I have no idea other than publicity, but it was a purchase that you can't make on a credit card. They paid 49 and a half ETH, that's Ethereum, for this NFT, and Visa collected no transaction fee for the purchase. So this tells me a couple of things. Big finance is seriously paying attention to the crypto space. Now, remember back when people were afraid to use a credit card on the internet? I mean, I remember, I think in like 1998, when I, st I first started collecting Wayne Newton memorabilia on eBay, and you know how I paid for a lot of the items that I bought? I mailed a check to the seller. So I'd win the auction, mail a check to the seller, and then when they finally got it, they cashed the check, and then they sat on the item for another few days to make sure the check cleared, and then they finally sent me my item. Okay, so that was internet commerce back in the day, and in crypto time, we're really in a similar place. You know, I went to buy a $3 NFT today, and the ETH gas fees were 30 bucks, so I didn't buy it. You know, there's still a lot of kinks that need to be worked out, and we still have a long way to go before making crypto purchases is fast and secure and cheap, but it's coming. And companies like Visa are in a mad scramble to figure out how they can get a piece of that action. Because, you know, right now when you go to the grocery store and you buy 100 bucks worth of groceries, Visa's getting like 3 or 4% of that. Actually, you know what? I can't say that for sure. It seems to me like back in the day, they were getting about a 3% cut. Uh, I don't know what it is now. Maybe it's gone down. I doubt it. Anyway, they've got to be deathly afraid of 
decentralized finance because if they don't figure out a way to get their hooks in it, they're they're fucked here 10 or 20 years from now. So anyway, what does this have to do with retirement and your retirement specifically? Well, from a commerce perspective, if you're 10 years out from retirement, by the time you do retire, I mean, we're going to be living in a totally different world. Next month, in case you haven't heard, El Salvador is going to become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as a national currency. Now, nobody knows what that's going to end up looking like, but that's going to be super fun to watch. El Salvadorans who sign up for the plan are going to each get 30 bucks worth of Bitcoin. And uh, oh, and not surprisingly, the IMF does not want this to happen. Uh, you know, El Salvador is just the first one. You know, there's a lot of other countries out there with very unstable currencies who could really use something like Bitcoin, especially as it hopefully becomes less and less volatile as adoption continues to increase. So I will keep you updated on this as, as things develop. Um, also this week, uh, Mark Cuban got into it on Twitter with SEC Chairman Gary Gensler. On Tuesday, Gensler tweeted about, I, I think... He was talking about the crypto crackdown language that was included in the recent infrastructure bill. And uh, he here's what he said. He said, the spirit of the law is about protecting investors. Our rigorous enforcement regime is about following the facts and the law wherever they may lead on behalf of investors and working families. They always have to put the working families in there. Uh, anyway, whatever. But then Mark Cuban came out swinging. His response was, quote, this is such bullshit. You didn't start the BS. Please don't continue it, he tweeted. If you were working on behalf of investors, you make it easy for questions by investors and business people to be asked and answered. You make it near impossible. Those who can't afford lawyers can only guess. And so uh, what Cuban's talking about here is that basically – they used the term broker in the new law. And essentially, it could be construed as anyone who is trading in Bitcoin or mining is a broker. And so therefore has to do like uh, IRS reporting and whatnot. So it's it's the law is poorly written by people who do not understand cryptocurrencies. And Mark Cuban does understand. And he thinks Gensler is uh, full of shit. And by the way, if you if you look at pictures of Gensler, at certain angles, he looks like a very creepy, like a Looney Tunes era cartoon villain, uh, which actually is kind of appropriate for an SEC chairman. Uh, and my last little tidbit in the crypto area is this. So I've talked about health savings accounts. And as I've said, if you're self-employed with a qualifying health insurance plan, you really should have an HSA. So, uh, and there's a full episode about it. I can't remember which number, but it was just a few weeks ago or maybe a couple months ago. So anyway, because I'm going berserk on crypto, this week I decided to move my HSA assets 100% into the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which I do not advise you to do. Don't do anything I say. Don't do anything I say. Uh, disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. So I'm just sharing what I did. But if you recall, with an HSA, you can wait and basically reimburse yourself in the future for medical bills that you pay today. So you just have to keep your receipts. So that's my plan. Keep making contributions to my HSA, aggressively invest in cryptocurrencies, but then don't take out anything until I'm retired. That said, I'm not worried about volatility, 
because I'm in it for the long haul for the next seven years. So I have no qualms about going all in on something that's this speculative. And in the meantime, I'll just pay my co-pays and whatnot uh, and my prescriptions while with laser eyes, I'll watch my HSA go to the moon. So why am I sharing this? Well, in the process of trying to buy my shares of the Bitcoin trust, Fidelity gave me a stern warning and told me I needed to change my on-file investment objective before they would even let me buy the shares. So in, in case you've never seen something like this, um, in most brokerages, they give you a little like a questionnaire when you're opening the account, um, just so they can gauge your investment sophistication and whatnot. And one of the things that they'll ask you is your quote, investment objective, and you'll be given options like conservative, balanced growth, or aggressive growth. Now, when I opened this Fidelity HSA account, apparently I, I just set the objective at growth. So Fidelity would not let me buy those shares until I went back into my personal profile and changed my investment objective to what they call most aggressive. Some kind of maybe uh, liability limiting move on their part, not sure. I don't have a problem with doing it, but I just, uh, I thought it was kind of funny. So next up, fears about social security. So I just saw a MarketWatch article that included the following. As the federal government spends trillions of dollars amid a pandemic, fears of social security's demise grow. Nearly half of all millennials, 47%, believe they, quote, will not get a dime of the social security benefits they have earned, according to a recent Nationwide Retirement Institute study. And overall, 71% of adults aged 25 plus worry about the social security program running out during their lifetime. So we've all heard that the Social Security Trust funds are going to run out by 2035, leaving us with only 80% of our promised benefits, right? Um, I just went to my SSA.gov account, and it's written right there with a little asterisk next to it. It says, your estimated benefits are based on current law. Congress has made changes to the law in the past and can do so at any time. The law governing benefit amounts may change because by 2035, the payroll taxes collected will be enough to pay only about 79% of scheduled benefits. So that said, pretty much everyone, any expert out there, says that if you're over 40 or 50, you probably won't be affected by the calamitous future of the Social Security Administration and the trust fund. But I would encourage you to do this. I think about this a lot. Count on that 79%. Count on only getting 79% of the benefit amounts that they tell you. If the Social Security Administration is concerned enough to put it in writing with a little asterisk next to it, I think it's worth you planning on only getting that 79% and putting that into your math when you're doing your calculations for the future. So if you do plan on getting that 79% instead of your full amount, and you do start collecting, and then they have figured out how to bridge the budget gap and do full payouts, just consider it a 20% bonus raise. So it's better to go in expecting less than to go in expecting more and getting less. Now, to millennials, I, I know there probably aren't any millennials listening to this, but the 47% of you who don't believe that you'll get a dime of your share of Social Security benefits, well, I, honestly, I would not worry too much. For one thing, Old people are a gigantic voting block, and 
There are old Republicans and old Democrats. You know, 20 or 30 years from now, while the world may change, money may change, fashion may change, and on and on, the one thing that won't change is that politicians only care about power. And the only way they retain power is by getting votes. So when they're forced to do something about Social Security, they will. But that said, if you are a millennial and you're afraid of Social Security running dry, use that as fuel to increase your savings rate. Think about that $20 lunch and the future value of that $20 before you waste it. Think about putting aside that Starbucks money and make your goddamn coffee at home. You know, it's really not that hard. And, you know, just for the hell of it, um, let's look at what that $20 lunch would have would have ended up becoming. So uh, let me break out my Compoundy app. Uh, by the way, if you haven't downloaded Compoundy yet, um, you should do so to do these fun little future value calculations. It's C-O-M-P-O-U-N-D-E-E, -E, Compoundy. Anyway, so if you're 30 years old, let's say you're 30 years old, uh, 30 years old, 30 year olds are millennials, right? Uh, if you're 30 years old and you skip one $20 lunch a week, okay, just one $20 lunch a week, skip that. Put that money in the stock market and say the S&P continues to average, say, around 10%. By the time you're 67, by skipping that one lunch, that one $20 lunch a week, you'll have over $350,000. I love this stuff. You know, this it, it never gets old. Think about that. So, again, if you're worried about Social Security kind of drying up, Use that as fuel to increase your savings and be more disciplined about it. That's it for today. Um, have a great weekend. Think good thoughts. Be nice to people. Save your money. And uh, yeah, I'll talk to you next week. Bye. Nothing in this podcast is meant to be financial, legal, or tax advice. Though there's some kick-ass information here, it's for informational purposes only. Take control of your retirement planning, but get professional counsel if you need tax, legal, or financial advice. For more content like this, join my mailing list at rogueretirementlounge.com. And if you have questions about retirement investing, entrepreneurship, business, or anything else, my email address is matt at rogueretirementlounge.com.